If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Mark's Gospel. We'll look at uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, through chapter 9, verse 1. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. So last week, um, we're, we're in an Advent series, and uh, last week was the first week in Advent. We looked at the way that um, glory descends in the person of Christ. We saw from Philippians 2, Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians, um, how it is in God's very nature to pour himself out, to empty himself, and take the low place of service and sacrifice as is clearly seen in the incarnation of the Son of God. He is glorious because he humbled himself, because he came uh, to the earth, became a human, because he died. That's why he's glorious. And the glory of who he is, the glory of his person, is the, cl- is, it's the kind of glory that descends. Right? It, uh, it doesn't make sense to us the first time we look at it. Um, and this week, uh, we'll look at glory descending in Christ's teaching, at the upside-down nature of his message, um, about the kingdom of God. We spent uh, quite a bit of time actually going through Mark's gospel a few years ago, so some of you have probably heard a version of this uh, before. But this morning's passage, I think, is, uh, is very central to Mark's gospel. It's, uh, it's pivotal, it's transitional uh, in a storyline as Jesus moves from Galilee, which is where he did his early ministry in the north uh, part of um, Israel, as he moves from Galilee south to Jerusalem toward, uh, toward where he was going to be killed. Um, it's at the very core, this passage, of Jesus teaching about himself, uh, about discipleship, about what it means to follow him, and it's, it's kind of a theme passage for this book. Uh, if you wanted to understand what Mark was about, I'd point you right here at this, uh, to this passage. But, uh, but it is the kind of teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching here, that at first glance doesn't make any sense to us. So uh, we'll need God's help to understand it. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, left to ourselves, left to our own devices, we would plainly resist your word and not understand it, and we pray that you would grant us illumination by your spirit, that we would understand your word, and that we would welcome it, and that it would transform us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So up until this point in Mark's gospel, if you're familiar with it, uh, Jesus has been teaching primarily in parables, which are sayings that are deliberately made difficult to understand. Uh, it's contrary to maybe popular belief about it. They're not just illustrations for clarifications on some difficult points, right? Like he's trying to get a point across, and so he uses a story to do that. Uh, no, it's actually deliberately made difficult uh, to understand. Parables are, are mysteries. But here, for the first of three times in this gospel, in chapter 8, 9, and 10, um, Jesus makes things crystal clear. And he reveals his full plans to his disciples. But even though he's making things crystal clear, he's not speaking in parables, it's still so difficult to comprehend what he has to say to them that he has to say it three times. And, um, and that's something that you see all the way through the Gospels, is that the disciples are a little bit slow on the uptake. Um, and just as a side note, this aspect of this account lends credibility to the Gospels. The Gospels were based on the eyewitness testimonies of the disciples, the people who were with Jesus. And they consistently painted themselves in a negative light. Um, the English Standard Version Study Bible says this in a note on this passage, uh, or on the book. Widespread evidence from the early church fathers affirms that Peter passed on reports of the words and deeds of Jesus to his attendant and writer, John Mark. So this passage is written by Mark, who was Peter's attendant. Uh, this passage is based on Peter's own testimony. He's the one who tells us that Peter was the stupid bad guy. Right? And that's, that's some pretty raw honesty right there. It's not the, kind of thing, <clears throat> not the kind of thing that you'd put in a story that you were making up to gain influence and win friends for yourself. Right? You wouldn't make that up if it weren't true. So, so Peter didn't get it. He tells us. He didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. And it is not at all because Jesus is a bad teacher that he has to repeat himself three times. Jesus is the greatest, wisest teacher who has ever lived. He understood human beings perfectly. He knew how people thought. In fact, he actually knew exactly what they were thinking at any given moment. So he clearly knew how to communicate and convey concepts to them, yet he has to repeat his clear teaching to his disciples three times. It says, verse 31 and 32, he, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, who were the religious leaders of the day, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So he says almost the identical thing in chapters 9 and 10. Again, and, and each time the response from the disciples is the same, they demonstrate their lack of understanding. And then, each time... Jesus instructs them on discipleship, what it means to be his follower. Uh, it says in, um, in chapter 9, 
verses 31 and 32, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they started arguing with one another about who's the greatest of us, of us disciples. Who's the greatest? So Jesus teaches them that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then in chapter 10, it says, He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Then James and John ask him whether they can have the highest positions in his coming kingdom, which gets everybody else really upset. So Jesus teaches them that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So three times we have the very same pattern. Jesus teaches clearly that he's going to suffer and die before he rises from the dead. Second, the disciples show no comprehension whatsoever. And then third, Jesus teaches them what it means to be his follower. So one might think that the pattern would go something like this. Jesus teaches clearly that he's going to suffer and die. The disciples ask him to further clarify his teaching. And then Jesus teaches with even more clarity that he will, in fact, suffer and die. Maybe explain why. <clears throat> but instead of explaining himself more clearly, he appears to redirect the conversation to their view of discipleship. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Give your life for me and for my gospel. Become last. Become slave of all. Does that teaching curriculum make any sense to you? How is that teaching strategy supposed to help the disciples to get what they're obviously not getting about Jesus, about his suffering and his death? Let's think about it. In each of these passages, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is actually his all-time favorite title for himself, as recorded in the Gospels. Who is the Son of Man? What does that mean? What does that title mean? Uh, He's the one prophesied in the Old Testament, particularly in Daniel uh, chapter 7, which was written, um, I don't know, five, six hundred years before Jesus was born. Uh, It says this in Daniel chapter 7. It's a vision. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man would be this powerful heavenly figure who would find God's complete favor, complete favor in the sight of the Ancient of Days, who would rule over all humanity invincibly and forever, whose glorious kingdom would put an end to all suffering and violence for God's people. And he would bring peace and order and prosperity and justice to all the earth. It's the Son of Man. It's a majestic, hopeful picture of the Messiah, the Savior. But Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed and three days later rise again, and he said this plainly. He said it plainly. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, wait a second. Um, Come over here for a second. In case you haven't noticed, you're pretty powerful. You can raise the dead. You can cast whole armies of demons out of people and stuff. And I know you've read Daniel, It says God is going to make you a glorious king of an everlasting dominion. It's going to be totally awesome, man. So don't get all morbid and talk that way. You really should ease up on the whole suffering and death stuff. Makes sense, doesn't it? But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus looks around at his disciples At his guys, and he sees them, he sees them, and he knows what they need. He sees a teaching moment. So he rebukes Peter severely as his direct adversary, his opponent. That's what the word Satan means. If Jesus was going to save anyone from hell, he had to die in their place. This had to happen. This must happen. It's written in the scriptures. God had said that it would happen. Do you think the devil wanted that to happen? No. And like the devil himself, Peter would steal away the word of God. He would prevent, actually, Jesus' primary mission from taking place if he could. So, Peter, let's fix this problem. Let's get your mind set on the things of God rather than the things of men. And calling the crowd together with him, uh, with his disciples, he said to them, I'm here to die for your sins. Don't you get it? No, that's, that's not what he said. He said, come here, everyone, listen to this. If someone's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Teach him about self-denial. That'll clear things right up. How does teaching the disciples about self-denial help them to understand that the Son of Man must suffer and die? So here's the real problem. It's not that the disciples don't understand what Jesus has taught them plainly. They do understand Jesus' teaching. It's just they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe it because of what it means for them. They hear the Son of Man, the one who's supposed to remove all suffering from the world, ruling forever over the peaceable kingdom of God. He's the one telling them that he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders who they imagine should probably be on his side at this point. 
then it seems like he's probably saying there's not going to be any peaceable kingdom like we expected. Right? And we're his disciples. He's been training us for years to do exactly what he does. So instead of heaven on earth, we get persecution and martyrdom? Instead of ruling with the Messiah in glory, we get to serve our enemies and die at their hands? Instead of the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams, we get to pick up our leader's dead body and face the shame of defeat and return to the hopelessness that's characterized our lives for so long? No thanks. No thanks. Yeah, hey Jesus, uh, how about instead you just vaporize all our enemies? How about you just bring that kingdom of yours that you're always talking about and give us places of authority and power and prestige? How about that? This is why Jesus teaches them about self-denial, about following him by taking up their cross, which is the very symbol of death and shame. It's because the lack of understanding his teaching comes from a resistance to his teaching unwillingness to receive what it means for their lives. If Jesus suffers, then we suffer. If Jesus dies, then we die. Well, I sure don't want to suffer and die. Therefore, I don't want Jesus, my teacher, my master, to suffer and die. Therefore, I refuse to accept his teaching about his suffering and his death. So, in fact, the disciples understood partially but not fully. It's like the blind man that Jesus healed, restoring his sight in stages. The disciples had a spiritual blindness that was being healed in stages. They knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They had just confessed that. Peter had just confessed that earlier in this chapter. He was the Son of Man. They wanted very badly for this to mean that they would immediately enjoy blessed and glorious perfection. They didn't want to believe that he had to die for their sins. They didn't want to believe that they'd have to toil through this bleak life anymore. They didn't want to believe that discipleship, that following Jesus, following his teaching, would cost them their lives as well. So Jesus taught them what it means to be his disciples. They must become suffering servants like him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian and pastor, said, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'd say the disciples are fairly representative of regular human beings. We want to be saved from pain and suffering, not, not promised more pain and suffering especially not the pain of the cross, the pain of rejection, even death at the hands of fellow humans. I mean, that's real suffering. People deride us uh, all the time for being Jesus' disciples, for following his teaching. Right? If you don't believe me, go watch the latest anti-religion documentary or go try to express your faith in your school or your, your workplace. People actively seek to do us harm for following Jesus' teaching, for being Christians. 
you don't believe me, go talk to the underground church in China or the Christians who are running for their lives in Iran or Indonesia. When people put us to shame or do worse to us, and this is suffering because we are made for love, not hatred and violence. It's suffering because it's not the way that things are supposed to be. And it's suffering because Jesus teaches us to forgive those who are causing us this suffering. Right? It's a cross we're to take up, which is God's instrument of costly, painful forgiveness. Grace. It is not a pleasant thought to suffer the way Jesus suffered, but if you believe in him and you follow him, then you're promised your very own cross, your own loving sacrifice, your own opportunities to bear tremendous pain, relational, psychological, emotional, mental pain to forgive other people. Bonhoeffer says that the cross is there right from the beginning. One has only got to pick it up. There's no need for him to go out and look for a cross for himself. So it's right there in front of us. So many of us train ourselves to ignore it, to ignore the cross that sits right there waiting to be picked up. And we pretend we didn't hear Jesus' clear teaching. Even if we've been a Christian for a long time, we still do this. We still do this. And this is another confirmation of the truth of this gospel because God's word explains this phenomenon. It predicts it. We've converted. We know Jesus. We're in a relationship with him. We've received his forgiveness. And we know how much it cost him to forgive us. We've been renewed by his spirit who dwells in us. Yet we still desperately hope that we don't have to obey his teaching here that we really won't have to suffer and die with our Savior, that we can somehow get through this life without picking up that cross that's right in front of us. And that very dynamic, having a heart that's divided between loyalty to Christ and a self-protective disobedience to Christ, is uh, perfectly predicted and explained in the Bible. It's because we still struggle. Even Christians still struggle with doubting God's word. We still struggle with sin that plagues us. Paul addresses this in his writings. Christ's teaching confronts all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. But we submit ourselves to Christ's difficult teaching here, even though it's against our very nature to do so, because his teaching is true. Because his teaching is good. You need to see that the way of the cross is the only way to true life. When Jesus calls you, he bids you to come and die, and you balk at the suffering that stands in between you and him. Then you're effectively saying, I prefer momentary comfort to eternal joy. I would rather avoid pain and be accepted by the world even if it means rejecting the all-glorious Son of God. Jesus teaches whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you suffer for your profession of faith in Christ, for your spiritual relationship with Christ, then you will find real life in the long run. Jesus did not prefer comfort to the cross. Can you imagine him hanging up there, bruised and bloodied and naked, people walking by and looking at him and scoffing at him as if he were a common criminal? That is rejection. That is humiliation and shame. That is ultimate suffering. And he did it because he was driven by love and grace. He did it because his heavenly father wanted him to, because the word of God said it was necessary that he should do it. It's all over the Psalms and the prophets. And R.T. France, a commentator on this passage, says, Jesus' death did not come as the triumph of the opposition, but as the fulfillment of the divine purpose. The Son of Man who would be rejected and killed is the same who would then come in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The death is the means to the glory. So death appears to us like a big, cold brick wall. We fear what's on the other side. We fear what it represents. We fear even being reminded of it, that there is such a thing as death. And we know very well what suffering is, but we, we have to believe when it comes to the glory part. Right? When it comes to what's on the other side of the brick wall, we have to believe. And it's a bit easier to believe in that glory now, isn't it? Because in chapter 9 in our passage, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So William Lane, another commentator, says that the function of this verse with its reference to the kingdom come with power is to provide certainty that the Son of Man will indeed come with glory and that those who now share in his sufferings will also share in his exaltation. The very next thing that Mark records in this gospel after our passage is a few of the disciples seeing with their own eyes the transfigured glory of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And Peter goes on to write about it later in his uh, second letter, Second Peter chapter 1. He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Speaking of the transfiguration, the disciples saw the truth of the promise. They saw the power and the kingdom and the glory resting as a mantle on Jesus' shoulders. They saw what awaited Jesus on the other side of his suffering and death. And in seeing that, they saw what awaits all of Jesus' disciples on the other side of their suffering and death. They saw the resurrected Christ. And Paul in Romans says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And he says again in Philippians 3, sounds crazy to us, 
He says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus teaches that if you don't follow him on his terms right now, then it is not going to go well for you in the long run. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? How will your temporary comforts and the world's acceptance do anything for your immortal soul? This entire world is not comparable to the glories that await you if you profess Christ, if you live for Jesus, if you follow his teachings, if you share in his sufferings. Jim Elliott, a missionary, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott went on to give up what he couldn't keep. He died as a missionary. Yes, um, there can be a serious cost to being a Christian, but there is a much more serious cost to denying Christ. For whoever is ashamed of me, he says, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Son of Man has already come into his heavenly kingdom, having ascended there bodily, being seated at the right hand of God, the holy angels attending him like flames of fire, all because he poured out his soul to death in obedience to his Father for love. And he will come again soon with glory and with judgment to fully establish his kingdom on the earth. So will you resist his teaching or will you follow him through death into glory? If you would follow his teaching, then you need to fight your own tendency to ignore his teaching. You need to study God's word. You need to expose yourself to it daily. And sometimes it's like forcing yourself, isn't it? Because you will not naturally live like a follower of Christ. You will not naturally pick up your cross. You will not naturally deny yourself and truly follow Christ in his teaching. You need to be constantly confronted by the scriptures and recalibrated by the scriptures. You need to be in church where we remind each other regularly of Christ's paradoxical teaching that doesn't make sense to us naturally. You need to teach your children that true eternal life is about more than just living a comfortable life as a good person and maybe getting a bigger house than their parents. Your children have to pick up their crosses and follow Jesus too. And who's going to be the one to hold before them the teachings of Christ that conflict with their own nature? We need to prepare our children to suffer for the gospel's sake and to forgive others who cause their suffering. Because while uh, it means real pain for us in this life, it also means certain glory for us in the next life. 
Because the gospel is true. The, the gospel of Christ's grace and sacrifice and upside-down teaching, it took people who didn't want to die with Jesus, his disciples, and it made them absolutely willing and ready to give their lives for him and for his gospel. All of Jesus' disciples who saw his resurrection suffered their whole lives for him, and most of them were killed for being Christians and for preaching Christ. His grace really does transform people like that, people like you and me, because everything he says is true. So follow his teaching. Follow him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as your disciples said, who can bear these sayings? Yet who else has words of eternal life? Where else should we go? You are the only true teacher. And we pray that you would help us to receive your teaching, that you would continue to shape us as we go from here. Shape us by your word and and help us to build one another up with your word. Help us to fix our eyes on you and on your truth and grace. We pray this in your name and for your Father's sake. Amen.